Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios present Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. I'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, Tongue.fm. That is T-U-N-G dot F-M. Dickers, this is something new and exciting in the podcast world. Something sorely needed. I and several of the rock and roll archaeology team downloaded the app and we immediately fell in love with Tongue's user interface. The ability to share and get recommendations of podcasts from social media is awesome. Plus... You can comment right on the podcast you're listening to and mention friends so they get notifications on what you like or don't like. This is a leap in finding podcasts that you are interested in, way beyond just iTunes reviews. Download Tongue.fm from their website or search the iOS app store. That is T-U-N-G dot F-M, a social podcast player. Hello again, all you diggers out there, and welcome to the next installment of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's ongoing series, Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. This is the place where we take an in-depth look at a wide range of topics, all of which are connected to rock music in their own unique way. Today, we have a really special treat for you. In May of 2016, Jay Stevens, an acclaimed author of numerous books, most notably for our purposes, Storming Heaven, LSD and the American Dream, was kind enough to sit down for a conversation with yours truly. It was both a blast and a privilege to speak with Mr. Stevens, and we hope you will all enjoy his insight and acumen. As you may have gathered from the title of the book, we delve into Mr. Stevens' work because of the undeniable link that eventually developed between psychedelic drugs and the rock and roll world during the 1960s. We consider LSD to be a highly influential technology that had a profound impact on rock and roll music, and that's why we chose to seek out an expert and explore the topic further. We reference Storming Heaven frequently throughout Episode 9 of our original podcast series, and we encourage you to go have a listen to that before diving in here. That being said, if you are even reasonably familiar with the subject matter, it is by no means a prerequisite to your enjoyment of the interview. You won't be totally lost without hearing it. It's just a cool, adventurous overview of the history of LSD and its impact on rock and roll, and we think you'll find it entertaining if you haven't already decided to partake. Of course, we mean partake of the podcast. Regardless of your level of expertise concerning rock and roll, Mr. Stevens' body of work, or for that matter, LSD, we think you'll find the conversation informative, enjoyable, and more than a little far out. Call it a revolution, call it a movement, or dismiss it as a craze. The psychedelic phenomenon didn't have a clear end, which may simply mean that, since the 1960s, 
it has merely waxed and waned, and it's still going on. And while psychedelia may not have an easily identifiable endpoint, it certainly had some clear flashpoints. We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. Hello, Jay Stevens. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Archaeology, Deeper Digs in Rock. How are you today? Hey, love to be here. It's good. I'm good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, let's get into it. We, we certainly want to dive right into Storming Heaven and your, your thoughts on LSD and the music of the 60s. In our main narrative, we devote Episode 9 to technology, and we see LSD and other psychotropics as forms of technology. We feel that uh, LSD's arrival to the counterculture in 64-65 was as instrumental as the Beatles performing on Ed Sullivan or even Elvis. But before we get there, can you tell us a little about yourself and how you got to writing Storming Heaven? I grew up in Vermont. I grew up on a classic kind of Vermont farm. One side of my family are all Yankees, but uh, my father married a <laughs> New York City working woman, upper middle class, you know, medical family. So I sort of have these, these two strains in my life. Mm. So, you know, I left the farm. I went to New York, then to L.A. and all of that. But, you know, uh, the 60s didn't reach Vermont really until like the 70s. <laughs> uh, uh, one of those 10 years behind parts of the country. Not, not quite 10 years, but certainly, uh, you know, the 60s were just reaching here when I was in high school. The way I came to write Storming Heaven, I was living in New York. I was making my way as a writer. I needed to jump from freelance articles that I was doing for a lot of magazines to a book. That was the thing, you know, what's the book? And I've, I've never lacked for ideas, so I had plenty of ideas of what the book might be. In fact, too many. So I went out. It was one, it was one of those things where it was, let's go to the tip of Long Island. It mm-hmm. was like early spring. We didn't take any drugs or anything with us. Maybe, just, maybe some of the softer ones. But anyways, the idea was when I rolled back into Manhattan, I would know which book I was going to write. Right. You know, of the four or five that I was doing. It was like, okay, go out there and make the goddamn decision. <laughs> and a series of curious events happened out there. So when I rolled back in, I was writing Storming Heaven. Really? Just like I that? I, it was kind of given to me. It was a I, little bizarre. Ah, the muse struck you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, the, the question about LSD came up and we started talking about it. And I'd read, you know, a certain amount of stuff. It was like it had all lodged in one part of my brain all the little fragments and scraps that had passed through my consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I, we were talking about, I was thinking, wow, this is a hell of a book. What an incredible story. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I raced back into Manhattan and spent about two weeks at the New York Public Library and gathered all my information and fired off a, a little letter to a book publisher, to an editor I knew, and, you know, within two weeks of, of this sort of illumination, you should write a book about LSD. Right. I had a contract. Wow. Just one, two, three, and there you go. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I look back on it now, and there was absolutely no, I mean, it was the furthest thing from my mind. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fairy tale kind of. And you talked a little bit about the research of New York Public Library. 
two weeks. It must have taken you much more than that to really put yeah, it. Yeah, that was just to flesh out the thing to look at the science story. And oh, God, yeah, it took a couple of years. The heart of the research was a oh, probably three or four or five month road tour that I made around the country seeking out all of the, you know, whoever was alive still. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, the, the major players, right, right. Yeah, the major players, Myron Stolarov, Kaniger, uh, you know, I looked for Al Hubbard. I had addresses for him. I sought him out. He died a year or two before, uh. you know, in his in a little trailer park in Arizona. So I spent about probably four or five months kind of on the road going all around America. I just made a giant road trip. I left New York and drove south and went to LA and you know so I, I toured the country uh-huh. so that was really the heart of the research on that and I met Tim Leary and Oz Janiger and Sasha Shulgin and on and on right right uh, Canada on that trip I met the, mm. you know Terrence wasn't Terrence yet so yeah I met a fascinating crowd of people and would it be fair to say that there were kind of three main players from what I got out of the book it seems like there is the Aldous Huxley camp the Tim Leary camp, and then the Ken Kesey camp. Yeah, that's not a bad way to look at it. I mean, the Aldous Huxley camp, which was sort of the first one, the Ur camp, right. in a way. And Huxley was tremendously influential. We can't really grasp to the sort of, let's say, the medical community of Los Angeles who was beginning to investigate psychedelics, how powerful it was to have suddenly Aldous Huxley appear on the scene and be sitting in your kitchen. Sort of, <laughs> yeah, that, you know. yeah, that's a, that's a rock was, star before there were rock seen. stars, right. Yeah, he was widely seen as the most brilliant man in the world sort of thing, and, yeah. and he kind of talked that way, and he had this, this fantastic look. I mean, he looked like this giant, uh, you know, insect, this totally no body <laughs> to him at all. And he was blind. The other thing yeah, I remember yeah, about Huxley yeah, yeah. he was virtually blind. Yeah. So this guy that could see all this Some, stuff, Something out of really a Kafka book or something, right? <laughs> yeah, he couldn't really see in real life. You know, Huxley really had this, as I go into in Storming Heaven, he really felt he'd been looking for something to accelerate human evolution, to make us wiser, to sort of move the species onto a, a more benign and, and life-affirming path. Uh, and a lot of this was given a certain um, necessity because of the, the rise of atomic energy and the bomb. So, you know, the yeah. sort of discovery of that in the 40s really made them feel that they didn't have a lot of time. So Huxley, when he discovered first mescaline and then LSD, felt that if you gave it to the best and the brightest, I mean, being English, you would serve you turn on Oxford and Cambridge. Right, right. You've changed England. Right, right, right. So, you know, that's really what his perspective was. You turn on the elite, the artistic elite, the scientific elite, the cultural, economic elite. And a lot, you see a lot of the 50s with that and the Cary Grant stuff and the various people at Time Life, Henry Luce taking it. You really saw the Huxley agenda playing out. And in many ways, Tim Leary was picked up and supported as part of that agenda. And Leary, of course, disagreed and he felt that this was an experience everyone should have and indeed the powerful would only misuse it. And yeah, uh, they've misused so many things in the in, past. Exactly. He yeah. took it in his direction. But in a weird way, we may be going back to Tim's vision because we are in the psychedelic revival, at least scientifically and research-wise at the moment. I find it very fascinating the way it's sort of rolling and the swiftness of which it's going and sort of how it's repeating. I mean, you know, headlines from the 50s that the headline writers are completely unaware of that in some sense there was an earlier epoch. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Howard Johnson's the Orange Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. They were yeah. everywhere. Yeah. That was just sort of the decision that you would have these psychedelic sort of spas that would look like Howard Johnson's or one of those, and they'd be all over the place, and you would arrive and Yeah, you know, uh, let us say, and, yeah, set and setting is uh, is very yep. important when it comes to uh, totally. psychedelic yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, you'd go through the set and setting, where you wanted to go, how you wanted the trip to progress, and, you know, a skilled group of clinicians would do that for you. That was sort of Tim's... Uh, yeah, that's almost like an evolution to the democratic way when you get to it. You start with Huxley and, you know, the elites, and mm-hmm. then you get to Leary who says, well, maybe more middle brow and m- middle way. Yep. And then we get to Kesey who just says, yeah, let's just give it everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kesey was, again, what Kesey kind of fell into, the mass ecstasy, will you say? What happens when a huge group of people begin altering their consciousness? in a unidirectional way, in a kind of in the one set, maybe with a lot of the same setting in right. their head. This kind of group body mind that springs up that can be profound and powerful and cheesy, you know, totally fell into that and fell into the, so that goes back to probably the 1840s, this concept that there was going to be some new art form, some sort of totalizing art form back in the late 1800s, they thought maybe... That's around the same time as the spiritual awakening in America. Yeah. Same sort of concept. Same sort of concept, that you're Mm -hmm. going to discover some sort of new synthesizing, synesthetic art form. And uh, this has been around for, you know, 150, 160 years. And Mm -hmm. I see very much the Kesey acid test because he is, you know, he was a committed artist. Yeah, uh, much more than he was a social activist or any of that. Better scientist, you know, he didn't particularly want to save people or make them healthier necessarily, but he was interested in a good story. So he really and the pranksters fell into that domain and sort of really pioneered. I don't know if we want to use the word pioneered because it was pretty ad hoc, the acid test, but this kind of group ecstatic experience that we see with the uh, the raves and. You know, these are all successors of the acid test. Oh, definitely. Uh, definitely. Yeah. So large groups of people sort of unified up. And, and what can happen? Uh, what can happen with the, the body-mind if you could sink everybody up, 300, 500 people? You know, I mean, the, back in the acid days, they were playing, they thought maybe we'll leave the planet, maybe we'll contact extraterrestrial intelligence. That's taken it maybe pretty we could far. Find somebody who's sick here and heal them. You yeah. Know? Maybe we yeah. can cure cancer. Well, uh, but, uh, y- y- as you said in the book, e- even from the earliest days in Hoffman's lab, two things that become very apparent is, one, nonconformity, mm-hmm. uh, a different way of perception, maybe causing a little more empathy, and certainly an advent to creativity, having the muse uh, within you opened up. And, and I think those are three pursuits that scientifically should be looked at. Uh, it's too bad it got shut down uh, when it did, but as we're discussing now, it seems to be making quite the comeback. Yeah, I mean, it's a, the research got shut down. The street use has remained remarkably stable. Yeah. From the high point in the 60s, it comes down to when they do the senior surveys, which is how they basically assess drug use. They sit seniors down 
high school seniors and they, they give them the survey and assuming that they're not lying like crazy, which of course I assume, you know, I, to me, it's like what a worthless document this probably is, but, um, especially when it just comes to seniors that maybe, maybe if they yeah. to college seniors, it might be better to, to ask. The I mean, exactly. You're going to sit high school seniors down and say, list your drug use. And you're going to think this is you a science document. Right, right, right. Cut it out. But nevertheless, about 12 or 13%, but, uh, you know, it, it represents a, a pretty steady appetite for this kind of experience. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're aware of the microdosing in the tech community. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, um, that, that is getting to be a really big deal. Yeah. The link between psychedelics and, and the tech community was a book, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago. But Leary, basically, at the end of his life, was arguing that the true successor of, of the psychedelic movement, the whole point of it was to lead to the sort of Silicon Valley, this tech explosion. And... The use by the tech community, particularly out in California. Yeah, uh, I think Ampex. Exactly. It goes back to Ampex and Myron Stoloff in, in the 60s. Yes. Sort of thinking that this is a revolution for a company like ours, you know, this is a revolutionary tool that, that would be silly not to use. And uh, the tech community has used it. I mean, and, and used, you know, like DMT mm-hmm. and, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> highly, uh, highly powerful and interesting, interesting substances. So, the fact that a lot of the technology that we have has come out of this is just fascinating because you have the sort of two sides. On one hand, the cycle movement enhanced this sort of recovery of the earth, you might say, mm-hmm. almost going in that direction. You know, back to nature, which kind of came out of the later '60s and certainly into the '70s. Yes, in the seventies. On the other side of it is you have the use of it to create these fantastic machines that are gonna make well, that basically have brought us to the point where we say we can eliminate nature. Eliminate nature perhaps within our own bodies. Download and uh, Oh sort of, you're talking about the singularity uh that's Yeah, well yeah, that's what it's called now. I mean, but you know Yeah, yeah, yeah it has been many names. The, the, right, right. the, name, but, the man in the machine. You know, right, 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 right. Yeah. Back when I was writing Storming Heaven and you ran into this and I gave a number of talks back in the late eighties, early nineties on it. It was you know, seen as shedding the monkey body. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the singularity, it was just like, Yeah, we're gonna shed the monkey body. Well, you know, I don't necessarily have to be a carbon-based life form. I can be a silicon-based life form. If so. you can get the mine in the machine, um, certainly, I've, I've considered you even... do that. Yeah, I, I mean, not to go <laughs> off on a tangent, but you know, I've always thought maybe sentiencies, the, 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 the reason for it is to get off the rock. And if we're going to get off the rock, the, the organic human body is not meant to space travel. It's just not. But if you can put consciousness into the machines and the machines can uh, move mm-hmm. from place to place, maybe that mm-hmm. is the evolutionary path, if you will. Uh, yeah, wow. Well, I think, I think all of these things were brought by this extraordinary encounter with these psychochemicals, these spiritual entheogenic substances that you know, rocked the American consciousness, particularly starting in the 60s, and has led us to all these new technologies and thoughts like this that perhaps we can have to shed the monkey body uh, to go out into space. And also the thoughts that... Do it. It's the only way, yeah. Yeah, maybe the body, but maybe the body is already a spaceship. Maybe the body is some sort of, you know, cosmic resonator, and there's states of consciousness that you can go with in this body. 
that you won't get to if you download into some sort of robotic cyborgian, you know, thing that doesn't then evolve. Lose some of the humanity and lose some of nature. Yeah, John Lilly was a crazy scientist that really developed the float tank, deeply Mm -hmm. involved in trying to communicate with dolphins. But he was a very crazy senior scientist, very famous in the scientific world, a motif of his, the two directions of evolution. Mm -hmm. Sort of staying in a kind of organic body that then can discover through the use of these substances powers that allow it to expand out or downloading into what I said, some sort of robotic cyborgian entity. Right, right, right. Uh, Maybe maybe there'll be both, kind of like science and religion or what have you. You know, you you need them both in some way or another. Yeah, well, usually that's what happens. Yeah. Usually it's neither one nor the other. Tell you a funny John Lilly story for that. Yeah, please. Tons of Lilly fans in in the Bay Area. (laughs) (laughs) Lilly's wife, Tony, was a very well-known and sort of courtesan. I use that word loosely, but she, okay, she basically dated and dated and slept with very brilliant men in the uh, in the Los Angeles Caltech milieu, and she was very upfront when I sat down. I'd, I'd heard this about her, and I remember I drove to Lily's house, which was way up in the hills above Malibu, little dolphin sign, and uh, I get up there, and Tony's there, and she gives me coffee. John's not there, and she starts telling me that this is her life plan to basically need and sleep with the most brilliant men she could find. That's oh, it sounds like she'd fit into the yeah. GTOs, just a, a different set of rock stars. Yeah, exactly. So she was, <laughs> she was moving through. And then, and then as she said, and she says that then, then I went and slept with John and I married him. So obviously being the most brilliant man. So, He won the prize. (laughs) He won the prize. So I'm listening to all this, and I have my little tape recorder and everything else. I'm prepared for my interview and all of that. And uh, Lily's not appearing. Lily's not appearing. She's telling me this. Pretty soon, he comes out in this totally Obi-Wan Kenobi ratty bathrobe, and he just looks like something from another planet. And he's he's obviously deep into a ketamine trip. Uh And he sort of stares at me with hollow eyes, and he hasn't shaved. <laughs> and you know, he probably walked out about two minutes after she said, oh, and then when I, I met John, that was it. I knew that there would be no more brilliant whatever man on the planet for me. Oh, uh, so she was the opening. Uh, we didn't do the interview. Yeah. yeah, I never I never got the interview, Lily. Oh my gosh. He was in no state to comment. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine. Well, uh, that's too bad. Well, hey, we've gone way off. Let me let me let me roll you back to Huxley Leary and Kesey's approach and in, in spreading the news, if you will. Do you think it could have been any different? Oh, gosh, alternative histories. Could it have been any different? Yeah. It uh, could Leary have... Uh, sure, I mean, at every moment you can you can sort of say that Tim Leary might have played it differently and, and, you know, leveraged the Harvard... The science side instead of the evangelist side. Yeah, if, he, if he'd moved more on that thing, a lot of people feel this in the sort of research community. The Huxley crowd really feel that Tim made tons of mistakes, and Alpert could. Uh, anyways, yeah, that could have. That could the, have the group first. Alpert, Messner, and Leary. They, 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 uh, uh-huh. Yeah, the drug changes you. So <laughs> yeah, yes. So in some sense, no, they couldn't have done anything differently. Did think think about Tim? I mean, Tim is such a lightning rod, Leary. 
Um, yeah. You know, oh, people God. hating, people loving, whatever. But what a great character. For As a writer, I come back and I say, yeah. I mean, people always say, what did you think about Leary? And I want to say, well, I don't know. He was always very charming to me. But what a great character. you got to remember, this guy had one of the great midlife crises of the greatest generation. Which, True. of course, was what his generation, he and Ronald Reagan, they're right, you know, they're peers, right? And so yeah. Leary is 40 in 1960 when he runs into Mescalito. He's yeah. just turned 40. He's a couple of weeks after his 40th birthday. Now, he'll turn 50 in 10 years, 1970, with a judge calling him the most dangerous man in the world. That's a that is a, a unique title and uh, and a heavy burden. There's no two ways about that. But, but they uh, have a lot of support at Harvard. Yeah. Um, through David McClellan. So, I mean, when you look back on it, that sort of thing, you said, well, you know, they were actually perfectly placed. They had a lot of powerful support up the academic chain for what they were doing. But it goes the way. I mean, you know, it's the sort of thing. Come over to my house on Saturday and we'll we'll drop acid. I've got this extraordinary substance. I mean, what's amazing is how many people pass through the weary little operation there in Harvard, from Charles Olson, the poet, to... God knows who else. I'm always amazed when I run into names of people that yeah, the, somehow uh, the power the brokers at uh, yeah yeah they came through and and had the experience through that, which is what Elvis Huxley you know wanted. Right, you wanted a guy at Harvard. Right, picking out the Larry Summers of the future. I'm being facetious here, but anyways, and changing their minds profoundly. Yeah, in the end, I think Kesey just basically opening the doors to all and all. It's almost like the lab experiment. You just you cannot really control it. it. It is going to get out sooner or later, especially something that in the end, as we know now, and you know, certainly was not the meme of the time, is not as dangerous as uh, was made out to be. It appears that it has far more positive uh, sides than negative sides. And this comes from the professional community of today. And I think that that's yeah. where it started. And it just, given the tumultuous uh, 60s, the change of generational uh, power, uh, this large group, the baby boomers that uh, were going to seize power in their own way, the fact that we had to contemplate living for the first time with the ability to actually destroy ourselves completely and utterly, all these things I think we're still kind of working on. And that was a question I had for you. You know, do you think we're still fighting these declared wars, uh, or or have we moved on to something different now? Articulate it. You mean in terms of the, the culture, the what, culture what clash? Mean? To me, it seems like about sixty four, sixty five, and you you said sixty five earlier. Is is that really dividing point between? one group of people or one set of political philosophy and now a new group of people in a set of, of philosophy on how to live life and what it means to live a, a fruitful life. And it seems like we're still fighting those wars. Do you agree? Yeah, I think, I, well, I think we've, uh, <laughs> I think if you look back, you'd say we've kind of lost them. What's the point of life? Don't you feel like if you look back at the 60s with its rejection of status, its rejection, you know, sort of saying you're more than your job, the sort of turning off the television? I think that we're much more processed today. I mean, in some ways, the idea that you're going to expand your cortex and the whole idea is to become actually more and more sensitive yeah. to what's going on, bring in more and more information. You know, I mean, you can't be too conscious that concept, I really think that we're very far away from that. You do. All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is the cynicism of the East Coast, but... <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I feel that there's been a re-embrace of sort of materialism and, you know, the status. That the, the dominant culture has fought a 40-year, you know, rear guard uh, war against all of these ideas, a vicious one. I mean, you pick up the New York Times, they might have something about LSD, but they regularly sneer at Bernie Sanders, who, of course, comes out of this sort of, his roots are in that 60s milieu in a way Hillary Clinton's, let's say, are not. Right, right, right. Um, You know, there's a kind of sneer for social action, and the hippies are still a dreadful word, you know. Oh, yeah, even liberal is a dreadful word. Oh, even, yeah. Ridiculous. So, you know, there's been a 40 or 50 years, so nothing like that ever happens again. And the other thing to remember is we said it happened so fast. In 65, the powers that be looked around pretty complacently and thought, wow, these are the most well-adjusted, the most adjusted generation we've ever had, the kids, the mm-hmm. baby boomers. Mm-hmm. They've been watching the, the TV and, and, you know, basically absorbing a kind of crude behaviorism since they were five or six. And uh, <laughs> right. to have them sort of go off, God, can I just go off the reservation? Excuse me, I'm being politically <laughs> correct. But to have them race all out of their suburbs. His started screaming, starving, hysterical, and naked, as Ginsburg said, was such a shock. Yeah. And this was largely, I attribute it to the power of LSD, that you could have one experience, right? You could take this drug one time, and it would profoundly change your whole way of looking at what you wanted to do with your life, et cetera, et cetera. So as I said, they said, you know, this drug is turning out hippies. You give them the drug, they become a hippie. Mm-hmm. You know, in Storming Heaven, I go into uh, there's the famous experiment they did with the Mormon students at Brigham Young because they needed a population that was untouched by the 60s, by about 1967, 68, whenever they did the study. And so they went there to the Mormons. And what the, the one category, when they gave them all the personality tests and thematic apperception tests and all that, the one category that was off the roof was ways to live. Yeah, um, that's yeah. the one area that changed radically. I mean, it just was like philosophy in a pill, the unexamined life. Wow, it really was. Just, yeah, it was incredibly scary for them. And the other thing, it got coupled. It came along with, of course, a war and a revival of of left wing sort of sentiment that had nothing to do really with the counterculture or the drug story. But of course, it was all happening in one place at the same time. Yeah, maybe maybe the line. I tend to think that uh, uh, the line was crossed, and uh, you know, it's the burden of America, the racial line, and uh, oh, starting yeah. with Brown v. Board of Education, and then certainly mm-hmm. again, here we are, sixty four, sixty five, one more time, where you have the Beatles, you have LSD hitting the scene, and even larger, you have the Civil Rights uh, Act and the Voting Rights Act in sixty four, sixty five. You know, it wasn't an accident that you have this giant backlash against all of this when especially that occurs. It just seems too strange for coincidence. Yeah, well, you, you kind of have it all. You have, you have a war that's like being conducted, uh, well, as the Pentagon Papers said, largely through lies. Right. Right. You know, which which the public is becoming subconsciously aware of, and right, certainly the right. kids. Yeah, exactly. You have you know the the whole racial awareness that uh, you know will drive. We're still roiling the country. Good yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that comes along, and out of it, of course, will come you know the the, the disappearance of like what five thousand years of detente on the erotic front. Yeah. Um, the arrival of women's lib. Yep. Which yeah. which by sixty eight is starting to burst through. 
Yeah. Um, of course, Simone de Beauvoir and all has come early, but suddenly it's tearing apart the you know the left wing political movements of all the radical women are saying fuck this. Right. You know. Right. right. <laughs> I'm making the coffee. Where you know I'm still being repressed here. <laughs> and then, of course, you have the gay liberal issue of Stonewall that blew up like Old Faithful. It just came roaring up. And certainly psychedelics and LSD had a ton to do with it. And if you go scratch back through any of those stories, you know, that's very clear. Well, we could continue down this for hours, but let's talk a little bit about music and your thoughts on how LSD and music changed at that time at 64, 65, 66 era. What, uh, what are your thoughts there? Oh boy, that's that's a complicated. I know this is these guys are far more knowledgeable than me here, but I'll just add a few things. Music, in some ways, was perfectly uh, contoured to be the art that you know the psychedelics moved through. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, there's a ton of writers that took psychedelics. It's hard to point to a psychedelic novel, really. Right. You know, and right. sort of say, you know, film, similar thing hard to sort of say that it really influenced it. But music, because it's changing your sensory calibration so much, to have something that's affecting your ears, the way you hear things, and the way you see time moving, and in some sense the way music is just little ambient pieces of time that we sort of make move, move through space with sound, right? Yeah. All of those things were particularly set up to, to be screwed with by psychedelics. Yeah, so, uh, they, they worked they, well together. They worked well together. And so you've certainly got the whole turn to the east. That's not so much the body being changed by psychedelics. You're saying, wow, I'm hearing different stuff. But that was sort of the whole eastern consciousness flowing in and the whole multicultural thing that made people start looking at different music. And right. starting to say, I want, you know, can we marry this with rock and roll? Mm-hmm. I mean, the sort of what the dead were doing when they took acid and, you know, sat around and just rehearsed for months and months and months. And Mickey Hart was bringing them all the weird time signatures from the tabla drumming and stuff he was, he was listening to and saying, yeah, can we make rock music out of this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But one of the most interesting things for the music was that LSD, I think, really primarily contributed to or, or had a lot to do with was getting louder. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. desire to have a sound that blew apart your sensorium. Yeah, um, you, you could a, feel it in the chest you, as opposed to just you got it. hear it. Right, right. And right down in the in the lower belly, you could hear the... Yeah, the rum. That uh, was, the rattling that was the kind right. of... Yeah. The idea of can we use this to kind of blow your mind. And I can't really put my finger on, you know, say exactly. But to me, the loudness, the desire to get really loud to have a totally consuming audio experience. Yeah, and it shows up right at the same time that these tools show up to be able to do exactly that. Yes. And we we mentioned Ampex, which, of course, is the great recording. uh, Right, right. Exactly, and building the tools. And that's what what, uh, Owsley, of course, who, you know, was a great LSD chemist and, of course, financed some of the debt, they came together exactly on the sound equipment. What oh, yeah. kind of sound? Owsley's famous get? wall of sound, right, right. You got it. Yeah. So the sound that you were bathing people with was very important and came out of the LSD. The other part that was certainly didn't come out of it was stimulated by it was the whole festival, the idea of let's gather bigger and bigger and bigger groups of people. Let's have music, which is putting you in a kind of synchrony. 
there's lots of drugs being taken, obviously, but mm-hmm. that also was an appetite created by these substances right, to right. sort of group together. So that you have something like an apotheosis with Woodstock, which was sort of a failed music festival, but I mean, giant festival energy generator. Yeah. <laughs> if I can make yeah. a distinction that still, still continues to this day. Right, right. Pretty much, yes. It's a large group experience. Yes, it's it's a ritualized, I don't know exactly the word you want to look at it, but that, that's how we hear music today. And it really goes back to that, even to the late 60s, when the sort of festival form was rediscovered and embraced by the baby boomers who pushed it back towards its archaic roots, which I'm calling the festal. You know, and the mm-hmm. festival, of course, commerce is antithetical to the festival. I mean, you know, having to pull out your wallet every few minutes is a near-death experience for the festival. <laughs> all right, the festival right. what, I, what am I calling the festival? That's really, we all know what that is. It's the sort of energy we feel when we've been to an incredibly, terrifically good party. And yeah. we've probably been yeah. playing with this energy since we became food-sharing apes in the Miocene. Right. You know, food, music, friends, and friends of friends who could become friends the feeling of sort of danger and safety and security. So, you know, we all go to a party, 100 people. We think, wow, that's, what if you had 500,000 people? I mean, this is what Keezy was sensing. Something like Woodstock, 500,000 people come together. The, the commerce part of it, the capitalism part of it, fails because it rains and the fences go down. So you just have a giant goddamn party. Right, right. And that energy, I mean, if you look back as a cultural historian, the energy of Woodstock powered the counterculture for at least a year or two, three years. The idea that something was glimpsed there, felt there, you know, that spread out. It's had a Johnny Appleseed kind of a meme, a mimetic effect, where even if you hadn't been there, you felt uplifted by what I'm calling sort of festal energy. I think we have an enormous appetite for festival energy. And of course, the powers that be know this. And so, I mean, today, as I say, you know, you're pulling out your wallet. Yeah. Well, we are social <laughs> animals. So I guess the capitalists will figure out a way to uh, to pull let some me, money me, from yeah, uh, the social socialism out. You know, the, the ability to get together and create community. Well, yeah. Let me give you two sort of examples to go back to. So it's like 67 in Haight-Ashbury. And, you know, the dad or Jefferson Airplane or whoever is playing for free. In the panel, well, the diggers feed the hippies, right? Yeah. Also for free. So yeah. your food, music, yeah. friends, huge release of festival energy. Giant. Yeah. You know, everyone's yeah. feeling this, wow, I feel so good. That good, incredible feeling. Okay, it's 2000, you know, a few years ago. This is actually a serious, real anecdote. The promoters of an unnamed festival, the temperature has just gone above 103. And they've doubled all the cost on all the remaining bottles of the water of life. They basically said, how much water we got left there? Double. (laughs) You know? $3 a bottle, push it up to six. (laughs) Jeez. Disappearing festal energy. You know, you might as well pull out a gun and shoot it. Well, I I, I do feel like I got a chance to feel it a couple of times. And most of the time, I'll admit was at a Grateful Dead show. Uh, I didn't arrive at those guys until the 80s, but uh, the first time I walked down Shakedown Street, I was just blown away. It was the closest to feeling what maybe the summer of 67 was was like. Yeah, they carried a piece of that festival energy, the culture, the idea that this is about something slightly different than what the normal model is telling you. Right. Yeah. Even yeah. if the dead didn't articulate it, I mean, when being sort of close to the dead and watching them, and having written Storming Heaven earlier, 
it was fascinating because they did not really try to articulate or direct or guide. No, it just was. What was happening in the yeah. dead hit. They just watched. They yeah. were just like saying, yep. you know, we're a bridge or we're a plane. And no one, you know, as I used to joke with them, I, to Nikki, I said, wow, it's not fascinating. No one's flying the plane. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> You've got this giant thing going around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, you know, and that was very cool. And that was Garcia. Yeah, I was going to say, when, when Jerry left the scene, it just wasn't quite there. Um, I've seen him a couple of times afterwards, and while I enjoyed it, the spirit was missing. So yeah, he was yeah he was a brilliant man. Yeah, yeah, that's He's a, you know. I mean, there are a few days where where I just had to stop and stop what I was doing and and not be able to do much of anything. And one was when John Lennon was shot, and one was mm-hmm. when when Jerry passed. So, what are some of your favorite psychedelic influence tracks? <laughs> if I can pin you down. Oh, God. I mean, you know, look, uh, Hendrix, certain Hendrixes can always blow me away. There's dead ones. Um, I'd have to sit down and look at the Beatles, you know, and say, which one here of their... Oh, there's a ton of them. As I start, as I start going, you know, I'm thinking... Well, maybe, maybe I can make this a little floor different. elevators, I mean, you know... Let me, let me try this a different way. Okay, okay, set and setting. You get to pick the place... And the music. What's your soundtrack in place for a good trip? Oh God, I tend to trip in nature. Ah, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I'm living yeah. on an extraordinary, powerful piece of land right here that tons of people have come in and, for one reason or another, discovered the bow. So I tend to most a lot of my trips in the last twenty, thirty years have been here. Mm-hmm. Do you have soundtrack, or is it just the soundtrack of nature? Well, it's the soundtrack of nature, but when I've done guided things, and I'm, I'm, God, I'm blanking on the French composer. All right, so let's get down. I, I've taken away too much of your time. So what are you working on now? Tell our audience uh, what's coming. Well, I'm finishing up uh, Volcano Weather, which the middle volume of sort of completes the Storming Heaven in the 60s and actually brings a little bit more of a political perspective in in a bizarre spin, I've been writing country western songs with, uh, with some musicians in L.A. That's in the last like three or four months. I've got this weird little songwriter thing going. Oh, we're we gonna get some tracks out here soon. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send you one out. You can play these. The, the album's gonna be recorded in September. Okay. But uh, Val and I are just cranking out, and you know, Mickey and I went on a long journey about rhythm and. Originally, we were going to write a book together, and I'm still waiting to see his version, but I'll probably put together my thoughts on rhythm in a larger non well, music and also non-musical. Right, so, right, you know, right. What this extraordinary, you know, lens to look at everything that's happening. So I've probably got 30 years of rhythm. Well, we look forward to all of that. So one last question. Your thoughts on LSD and the impact on popular music of the day. As big an impact as we say, like the Beatles and Elvis, or maybe not so much? Mm. Yeah, I think it it was such a, so of that generation of musicians. And let me go back and just say something about how cool, as you look as a cultural historian, and this was all happening when I was a bit younger, but about 1965, mostly guys, but certainly some women, put down, you know, their basketballs and their footballs and picked up guitars. Right. Because of the Beatles, because of the Stones, because it was a way to get women. 
But nevertheless, <laughs> that's certainly why I did. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> one of the largest and, and crazier turns towards art that you've ever seen in America. That suddenly all these people said, I want to make music. And the great thing was they didn't want to go to school to learn how to do it. You didn't have to. You just sit up and figured it out. Yeah. yeah. Right? Rock was so of, simple. Of rock music, right. Exactly. Right. Now, just as these people were doing this and, and just kind of getting their chops together, and even if you look at the history of the Beatles, they're learning as they're going from Hamburg and, you know, into their first album. So then you drop this incredibly powerful mind-expanding drug into their milieu. And I think all of them would say it was completely different afterwards. You know, yeah. the way I looked at music, the way I heard music, the way I felt that I was doing, the relationship thing, it completely changed. And you can see this going from the process sound that the Beatles and the you see were starting to push to the sudden explosion about 66, 67. It's going to go really carry us for another six or seven or eight years of incredible creative music. The reason we listen to this constantly and go back to it is because it was this creative. There's a kind of contact high that goes along with it. So even if only 20% of your musicians were had this experience, the effect covered everyone. Yeah, we say you're soaking in it and you're soaking it in. And it doesn't matter if you've actually taken a trip through this music, you have gotten the closest experience to actually ingesting uh, one of the psychotropics that uh, that we've talked about. So, well, Jay, so I guess you look back and you say, what if you took like those 10 years, 65 to 75 out of music? I mean, to say, what was the effect here? Take all that music away set it on the side, look at what you have in the 65, and say, what? that's the effect you're looking at. Yeah. You know, yeah. This, this thing opened the creativity, opened the mind, and changed a lot of the sound, the way people heard their instruments. So you agree with the it. Fact that's that you great. Drop, oh, totally. The fact that you drop these substances and play for 14 hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and feel like you were deep in the music and that the music was sort of coming out your pores and was in some sense running your heart and, and stuff that you realize is slightly hallucinatory, but you never recover from that kind of experience. Well, Jay, thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you. It's been great. And uh, yeah, I'll keep in touch. The aim of the game is to feel real good. What do you turn on when you turn on? What do you turn on when you turn on? The basic rhythm of the galaxy is turn on, turn off. Free energy, structure, release, control. Hey, we never promised it wouldn't get weird. Jay and I went a little far out, and we hope you had fun listening. You know, having a psychedelic experience is a pretty difficult thing to describe to someone who's never had one themselves. We're not necessarily encouraging any of our listeners to engage in illegal activity, but we hope this conversation with Jay has been interesting, informative, and maybe even a bit enlightening. Again. If you haven't already done so, we absolutely encourage you to tune in to Episode 9 of our main podcast and soak in a little more of the history, the music, and the social effects of the psychedelic phenomenon. Also, 
please check out Jay's book, Storming Heaven, LSD and the American Dream. You can purchase it via Amazon from our website at no extra cost to you, but Amazon will kick a few pennies our way for the referral. And lastly, keep an eye out for Jay's forthcoming book, Volcano Weather, soon to be available at major retailers. Thanks again for joining us for this installment of Deeper Digs in Rock. And please come back next time as we explore what happened one fateful December night in 1956 when four emerging musical titans joined forces to produce a one-and-done album that spawned a Broadway musical hit. And of course, as always, keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.